and I generally think, deeply believe that the best way to get whatever you want in life is help everybody else get what they want. And that certainly, you know, proved true when it came to, to me ending up in venture capital. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Sarah Kunst, the managing director of venture capital firm, Clio Capital. Sarah is a former senior advisor for Bumble and has been lauded as an innovator and leader in VC. I hope you enjoy our conversation about her career and the fascinating companies that she works with. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm super happy to be here. I would love to start out by exploring your background a little bit, your career background. So you started out in marketing for some retail and fashion brands, very well-known brands like Red Bull, Apple, Chanel, great names, great companies. Would love to have you tell us about your early career experience. Yeah, I studied advertising in school and worked for Apple, Red Bull, and Chanel during school, then right out of school. And so, you know, it it was a super interesting way to start a career. Uh, they're some of the the most iconic brands, and they're really all super marketing driven brands. And so, it's always interesting to work somewhere when you're working for a brand that is the best at what they do. And so, you know, the ability to do that when it came to branding, I, I think, has definitely influenced a lot of how I see the world, how I look at, at you know, companies to invest in. I, I pass and, and say no thank you all the time on companies because they're, they clearly don't understand brand. And, you know, I, I think what, what working for those places really taught me is that if you are a consumer-focused brand, if you are something that no one needs in their life, you better have an amazing, amazing brand so that people want you in their life. Mm, I love that. I love how you've taken that experience and applied that now as an investor So how did you go from marketing in those kind of roles into the venture capital space? You know, for me, it it was really organic and it was, it it came out of, you know, I was working at a company and while that company was sort of running out of money and winding down, I was going to uh, investor friends to ask them, you know, what I should do. And one of my investor friends just started, you know, asking me for, you know, hey, what do you think about this company? What do you think about this? And instead of just saying, oh, I don't know, I've never heard of it. I would, you know, just, I had free time. So I would do some research and I would, you know, send her back these long emails about, you know, this company is interesting because X, Y, Z, and this is what the market looks like. And I just was being helpful um, because she was helping me and giving me advice and I wanted to return the favor. But then, you know, she came to me and said, hey, actually, you know, you should come work with us. And so it was a great transition. I'm inundated with people reaching out to me saying, you know, how do I get into, how do I get into venture capital? And almost none of those people are coming to me saying, hey, Sarah, you know, I saw you invested in this thing. Here's something that could be really helpful to them. Or, hey, here's a really interesting article or report you might not have seen. Or here's some research I did. Or, you know, hey, I want to do something, you know, for you. And and I generally think, deeply believe that the best way to get whatever you want in life is help everybody else get what they want. And that certainly, you know, proved true when it came to to me ending up in, in venture capital. I love that. I mean, it sounded like not only were you in a great place with a, a person who you were corresponding with, but there was something about learning about these companies, evaluating them that also appealed to you. In other words, the work itself seemed to be an extension 
of what you'd like to do. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of fun. And and I think that's the other thing, like, you know, venture capital is a terrible part of finance to get rich quick in. You know, it is a thing where you're writing a check into a company that might easily take years, a decade more before you actually see money back. And and in the meantime, you know, you can get a lot richer in, in almost any other part of finance. I think that it's something that you should do because you love, you know, helping people build companies. And I love that. I love helping founders. I love, you know, collaborating with other investors. It, it just was a really good organic fit for me. And I think that that is sort of the most important part is not just saying, hey, this job seems cool and trendy right now, but, you know, really thinking about, is this something that I love and want to do? And for me, it was very much yes. So in addition to the financing that you'll bring to companies, how are you taking your marketing skills and helping them? Yeah, I mean, it really, it's helpful on a bunch of, on a bunch of axes, right? So, so some of it is, you know, marketing myself in the fund and in general, you know, the more high profile or prestigious your investors are than for founders in general, the easier it's going to be for the founders to raise more capital. And so that's something where, you know, I really focus on that in terms of being able to attract the best deal flow and to be the most helpful to my founders. And then with that, them, it's really helping them think about their marketing, who's their who's their target, you know, market, and how are they hiring the right people to effectively reach them. And so, you know, I'm always happy to to talk strategy, but but a lot of what I do is really kind of more focused on execution. That's been something that I've just really, really enjoyed being able to to help my founders with. And it's exciting to see, you know, to, to see the fruits of that as, as they hire amazing, diverse marketers and build really, really cool companies. I love that, that you get to really influence the companies that way too, through their talent and the teams that they're hiring. Yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. You know, as you've been an investor, you've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs what do you think the challenges are for women in this space, which really you know, makes it that women need to be more decision makers in the VC field? The challenges, right, are always the same thing. It's just racism and sexism. And so the nice part about that is it's a lot easier to, to fight an enemy you know. And so that's what it is, right? There's no other explanation. And, and there are reams and reams of research that show that there's truly no other explanation, you know, for the, the funding gaps we see, for the, the gaps we see in terms of, of who, you know, is tapped to be an investor and who isn't. It's just it's just sexism and racism. And, and I think you, you know, both explicit as well as sort of implicit it, you know, and, and so I think that the way you fix it is by, you know, hiring more women, investing in more women and, and giving more women, you know, a seat at the table to invest. And, and that's really just how it is. It's the only thing that changes this, right? I, I like to say that, that there are money problems and not money problems, right? Being dead is a not money problem. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It's not going to reanimate you. But venture, you know, the lack of women in decision-making seats at, at, you know, in venture capital and banks and finance and in our world is very much a money problem that you can solve by, by giving women more money. And how do you think we can help motivate women themselves to go into VC? Women are motivated. Are you kidding me? Women are so motivated. I, I, I have, if I had a dollar for every motivated woman who reached out to me because she wants to get into VC, I could like retire. And so the easiest way to get into VC is to go to a VC firm and say, look, I've been angel investing for a few years. My investments are doing really well. I want to get into venture. 
anyone, if you reach out to them and say, hey, here's how well my investments are doing, right? I My portfolio is 10x, whatever, 5x. I mean, 3x is the benchmark to, to beat in venture. So if you're 3.5x, that's interesting. You know, and so that is, women are very, I think, motivated to get into venture capital jobs. I But women, we know from data, even though women control a lot of money, women are much less likely to be angel investing. And so, you know, again, going back to, to my comment about sort of what makes people want to get into venture, and I'm looking for people who are already kind of helping companies or have some interesting point of views. I'm also looking for people who who are already doing it, right, if they're able to. So tell us about your work at Clio Capital. What does your day-to-day look like? My day-to-day, you know, is really uh, kind of fire drills. Your job as an investor is, you know, pretty, there, there's really kind of four buckets, right? You have to find investments, you have to win investments, meaning you have to actually be able to get, you know, the investment done. And then you have to help the companies do well and and so that they can exit and you can make money. And so, you know, I spend the bulk of my time helping my companies do well. And so what that tends to look like is literally anything. I you know, in the past kind of few weeks, I've done everything from drive a couple hours out of my way to pick up a laptop for a founder who's like busy launching her company. And, you know, she had a laptop at an Apple store that was not in a convenient location, but that's where it was and they wouldn't ship it. So I was like, you know, it's it's a little bit out of my way, but I'm, I'm kind of driving that way anyway. And I can do calls from the car. So yes, I will go get it for you. And then, you know, I, I'll help my founders, you know, with hiring, with with you know fundraising and more investor intros, thinking about press and marketing and branding and and then you know broad stroke strategy. But but it, it is definitely not a strategic job, right? It is. It, it think of it like being a babysitter. And if you're a babysitter and you are babysitting a toddler, you don't sit around all day like reading theoretical books about early childhood development. You are chasing them around and entertaining them and keeping them safe and healthy and alive. And that is what you do, you know, I I think as a good early stage investor is it's not a job for somebody who wants to show up at a board meeting and say, oh, you know, I'm, I like your numbers this quarter, or I don't like your numbers. If your numbers are bad and I am your lead investor, then that means that I am also not doing my job, right? It's not that you're not doing your job. I either picked, you know, the wrong founder or the wrong team, or more likely there are problems in the business that I am not actively enough helping you solve. So, you know, it takes a village uh, to, to raise a company. And I, I just think it's, really something where my day-to-day is sort of just waiting to see how how I can help my my companies and and you know then the other piece of it is stuff like this which is one very fun but two it's also just a great way to to help other people because to all my all my points you know hating on mentors you can listen to stuff like this and and learn a lot and so I make sure to take time out of my day when asked you know to meet with and, and speak to almost anybody who reaches out where I can kind of have a one to many uh, interaction because I I want to empower and help especially more women of color to know sort of to demystify venture capital and tech startups so that that you know they're are that much more confident stepping into these roles. So given that it's such a hands-on job with your founders and companies, 
How did the pandemic change what you were able to do or how you were working with companies? You know, it's interesting. I wouldn't say it changed it a ton. The reality is that a lot of stuff was already remote. And with founders, I'm hesitant to, to I, I have a very New York ethos still when it comes to community, which is how quickly can we get this done, right? And with founders, the time their time is their most valuable resource. So me saying, oh, it'd be so nice to catch up over lunch. Right. Okay. So now you have to block at least two hours on your calendar. You know, I live in the Bay Area. So with traffic, probably more like two and a half. You have to, you know, remember that you have to meet me. You have to get out of the app. Like all this stuff, when like whatever you need, like just tell me, just tell me. Like when people text me and they're like, hey, I'm like, what do you need? What do you need? And I don't mean it in a mean way. I mean, like, tell me what you need. Like, the answer is yes. If I can do it for you, if it's not illegal or immoral and I can do it for you and you're my founder, the answer is yes. So get to the point. And then, like, we can all get on with our days. And so, you know, the remote world in a lot of ways is actually sort of great for that because it helps compress that. You know, you certainly miss seeing people in person just for for fun. But the reality is most early stage startup founders don't have a lot of time for fun. And when they do, they certainly certainly are not looking to have fun with their investors, right? They want to hang out with their friends and their family. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I think for founders, it has been good for focus. I think it's, it can be harder for teams to get to know each other and execute. But I think in terms of focus, almost every early stage founder I know, you know, has really, really liked being able to just be heads down and not constantly be distracted. So you seem very focused and prioritized in the things that you do and how you spend your time. Among that as a principle, and are there other things that you employ um, that helped you grow the company? I mean, Clio is now the third largest black female-owned VC firm in the country, which is incredible. What were the things that you did along the way to get there? Somebody asked me once, it was so awkward. I was having lunch with this girl and she was like, you know, I want to be a trailblazer. I was like, I just want to do my job, you know, and everybody should have their own goals. And and so that's not to say that, that it's bad to want to be a trailblazer. I just personally have never once in my life thought, I want to be the first. I want to be the biggest. Like it's it's terrible, right? It's terrible that we live in a world where you know a, a sub five million dollar fund can still rank among the biggest funds ever by a black female fund manager. That's terrible, right? The largest fund, first time fund by a, a white man is like one point four billion, I think. And so that dichotomy, I, I'm not happy that I'm a trailblazer. I'm not happy that I'm doing things, you know, before anybody else because it's 2021, right? When I started. My my first fund, it was 2018. 2018, when venture capital was introduced, was a an, as an asset class was invented in kind of the 60s. That's not good, right? And and I can be happy and proud of what I'm building, but I still have to like hold space for the reality of like our world is so messed up that that's possible. No, you put it into really good perspective, and I think we have to keep that in mind when we talk about what it still takes to get there and just size and differences with many firms. You know, one of the things you're known for is your scout program. So I'd love for you to tell us about that. What is that and why did you start that? Yeah, so scout programs broadly, I'll talk broadly about it in the industry because we have a really small one, but there's a bunch of other uh, funds that have them as well. So what scout programs mean, it, it means that you're angel investing with somebody else's money. If you're a startup executive, you know, at an early stage company, you're maybe living in New York, LA, San Francisco, making like 100K, like 80 to 150K a year. And that that pays for, for rent and not 
not much else. And, and God forbid, you know, you have a family that it really doesn't go far. So, but you're, you're seeing, you know, great deal flow. You're seeing a ton of cool companies. You just can't personally afford to angel invest. And so, you know, what a scout program does is sort of fixes that by saying, you know, okay, we are going to fund your angel investing and then split the upside. And it's a, a really cool model. You know, I was a scout at Sequoia, the big venture fund. They invented scout programs. And so it's just been really, really cool to see sort of how that has evolved over time. Um, now lots of big funds have scout programs and there's just a really interesting sort of ecosystem of people who, you know, financially otherwise just wouldn't be in a position to angel invest who've now been able to become investors. So I would love to talk about some of the investments you have made and the things you're very interested about now. Maybe let's start with Bumble. So you're a senior advisor at the dating app Bumble, and they went public this past February, I think to great acclaim. What do you think they did right from the start, you know, to secure funding and to be seen as a very appealing investment? Yeah, I mean, they had a, a different kind of path in funding. Um, you know, they partnered early on with a bigger company that kind of seeded them. And it, it's a pretty unusual arrangement, but it obviously worked really, really well. And it's something that I think, you know, shows a, a great point that you can do things that are a little bit different and you don't need to only sort of go the traditional venture path if there are other options available to you. Bumble went and found a different way to get funded and, and it worked incredibly well for them. So, you know, it, it's certainly not everybody will have that opportunity. It won't be right for everybody. But sometimes I talk to founders who seem so obsessed with getting into a particular accelerator or getting funding from a particular source that, you know, a better deal might be on the table and they can't even really see it because they're so tied to this, you know, one specific thing that they wanted. It reminds me of like in high school when people were so obsessed with the school they thought they wanted to go to that they were, you know, not really looking deeply at, hey, what are the other options that might be a better fit for me? Yeah, I love that. That's a great parallel. Meaning there might be other people already there who are willing to help you, interested in your idea. Take advantage of that first before trying to find something else. Are there other companies in your portfolio you're particularly excited about right now that you can talk about? You know, I love so many of my companies. So so some that I, I'm really, you know, just super excited about are, are companies like Planet Forward, which Julia Collins is an amazing entrepreneur. She's the the first woman, black woman to have a, a unicorn company with her her first company, Zoom. And then now she's, she's doing Planet Forward, which is a regenerative agriculture company that works to make it, it sustainable for the climate and the environment to, to eat your favorite snack foods. And so that's a company I'm super excited about. You know, Hill House, Nell Diamond, what, what she's done with her nap dresses is, has been revolutionary, particularly during COVID. And, and we just love her so much. Another company of mine that I, I really love and spend a lot of time with is Easy Expunctions, which is a San Antonio-based company that focuses on helping people expunge criminal records because 40% of all Americans are arrested at some point in their lives. And, you know, it's disproportionately, you know, lower income and immigrants and people of color. And and so, you know, they're able to help those people get those those arrests that, that don't result in convictions off their records, which leads to to more, you know, more money. And because and, if you don't, if you have an arrest on your record in a lot of places, um, they just won't hire you and they'll hire somebody else. And so, you know, those are, are a wide sampling of our companies, but but three that I've just been so, you know, fortunate and impressed to, to be able to work with the founders. And, you know, given what the country has 
I think, come to terms with in the last year and the Rachel awakening, I think that many people have gone through. Do you think this is really going to change the environment uh, for founders, particularly Black founders, female founders? No, I mean, probably not that quickly, right? The reality is that America has been committed to racism and sexism for a very long time, right? When, when the founding fathers, not mothers, which were all white men, right, slave owners, put, put the Constitution, you know, that, that all men are created equal, they meant that all landowning white men are created equal, right? And, and so it, it takes a long time to unwind that damage, especially when half the country will tell you that there is no damage. So, so no, I mean, things are not going to change overnight. And uh, a friend of mine, I do a lot of work with the Reverend Jesse Jackson and, and uh, you know, Pastor Brian, a reverend who works with with him, uh, you know, as he likes to say, we are not where we want to be, but we are farther than we were. And so I, I think that that's sort of the best way to look at it, because the reality is like, no, things aren't going to change overnight. Things probably won't change that much in our lifetimes, right? But that doesn't mean that we give up trying. And I do think that it's important that now there's at least kind of more awareness of these things. And you're starting to see some small shifts. But, you know, in general, those shifts will backpedal if people don't understand that just because things are slightly better now doesn't mean they'll stay better, right? It, it takes a lot of vigilance to understand do something that that really is, you know, the the formative kind of culture and beliefs of of this country and, and candidly of the world, which is, you know, give the white dudes everything and everybody else can figure it out for themselves. And so, you know, when when I think upwards of 90% of all assets globally are managed by white men, you know, there's a problem and you know, it's going to take a long time to get it anywhere near parity. Well, it definitely requires sustained commitment. Uh, the work is not done. We're far from that. So that, that is absolutely right. What would you say then to people out there, women out there, women of color out there who want to be part of the solution, particularly as entrepreneurs and investors, what do you hope they will do going forward to, be, to make a change? I think that that the onus is on the people who need to change, right? Women don't need to change. Uh, you know, people of color don't need to change. We are, are brilliant and amazing and we're here and we're, you know, looking for these opportunities. What needs to change is the culture, you know, the, the implicit and explicit bias that keeps people out of these positions of power. And so, you know, that's that's where the change needs to be, right? We we have a race, we have a racism problem, not a race problem. We have a sexism problem, not a sex problem. And and that means that the problem is the people who are doing the negative behavior, right? Not the people who are, you know, waking up every day and doing their best and are still, you know, seeing just sort of everything from you know, the, the, we, we see it in so many different vectors, right? We see the anti-Black racism, we see the anti-Asian racism, we see, you know, xenophobia for immigrants, we see anti, you know, LGBTQ. I refuse to say the word homophobia because it is not a phobia, you just hate people, right? So we, we see the anti-LGBTQ behavior, we see anti-Semitism, like this is all, you know, coming from the same thing. We see sexism and, and none of those, none of the people who are being discriminated against or treated poorly or passed over for jobs or murdered or, you know, whatever are the problem. It's the people doing the behaviors. And, and so that's really where change is. And so, you know, I don't 
have, I'm not an expert in this. There are lots of people who are experts who can, can tell you, you know, kind of exactly uh, the, the path to take, but it starts, especially when it comes to race and gender, it's generally pretty easy to look around at your team and say, does everybody here look like me? And we know that diverse teams perform better. So if everybody looks like you, even if everybody looks like me, a black woman, that team is going to perform less well than a more diverse team. And so, you know, there's easy, obvious things like that. If you're listening to this, you're probably in the finance or business world. And so, you know, it's your fiduciary duty to make money for the people you work for. And so if not having a diverse team stands in the way of that, then that's a problem, you know? And and so there's so many kind of societal reasons, but at the end of the day, it's my job to raise money from investors and then go turn that, you know, every dollar they give me needs to turn into at least three, ideally $10 that I give back to them at the end of the decade of, of the investment period. And if diverse teams help me do that better, I would literally be crazy to not be surrounding myself with diverse teams. And so, you know, to all the crazy people out there who who say they care about making money and who aren't surrounding themselves with diverse teams, like I feel bad for you because, you know, you're you're missing out on money that I'm going to make. Well, then more power to you, I think for going out there and doing that. Sarah, I just want to thank you so much for being here with us, you know, sharing your perspectives. I think being so open about the things you've come across and the way you like to run you know, your company and and view people and career developments. It's just such a pleasure to speak with you. And we look forward to just watching uh, more good things happen with you. So thank you. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for joining my conversation with Sarah Kunst, the managing director of Clio Capital. She shared so many actionable tips on managing your career and breaking into VC. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC. 